We're going to turn to God's Word. Once again, we're going to look into Paul's letter to the Galatians and the second chapter. We come to the third in a series entitled, The Life I Now Live. And this expression is taken from one of Paul's autobiographical statements recorded for us in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, in which he said, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, this is a very brief statement, but it is full of very, very significant teachings. We have noticed, for instance, that the Apostle Paul says, first of all, the life I now live, I live by faith. Nothing surprising about that. Everybody lives by faith. We are wired up for dependence. We accept that certain things are true. That's called believing. And we build our lives on the basis of the things that we accept as being true. The only question is not whether we live by faith. The only question is, what we live by faith in. The second thing that he says is, the life I now live, I live for God. Nothing surprising about the fact that he lives for something. Everybody lives for something. Everybody has a sense of direction. Everybody has a sense of a desire for meaning. Everybody recognizes that there there needs to be, if there's going to be any sense of life at all, some sense of I'm going someplace to do some things. Everybody's living for something, even if it's just for themselves. In fact, that is probably the most natural thing that we do. We have an inordinate love for ourselves. When we become parents, of course, we tend to broaden out our interest and hopefully we we can begin to live for our families. And as time goes on, it's just possible that we might extend a little bit beyond our families and have a small circle of friends, people that we love and care for, and we live for them. But if it is true that there is a God from whom we come, through whom we live, and unto whom we're accountable, it ought to be rather obvious that it would be an unsatisfactory life that does not recognize that God has to be paramount and that we live for him in such a way that he has a profound impact on the way that we live for ourselves and live for other people. Uh, Now we come to the third statement that Paul made, and it is this. He said, the life that I now live in the body, that's the expression that we're going to look at today, and notice two things in it. The life that I now live I live in the body. Now, that is is a rather obvious statement. It's obvious that he's living now at the time that he writes, and it's obvious that he's not living in some outside-the-body way. He is living in his body. So why is he stating the obvious? I think the reason, probably, is this, that when you look at the statement as a whole that Paul made concerning himself, some aspects of it are decidedly mystical, and accordingly, there's a tendency to regard them as utterly impractical. I mean, look, look at what he actually says. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. And we say, huh? What in the world is he talking about here? Then inexplicably, he says, and I no longer live. He said, what? And then he said, but Christ lives in me. <laughs> what is he talking about? 
I, I think you'll agree that, uh, that on the surface, these, these seem to be incredibly mystical concepts. Now, there's something about human beings that, that is very happy to relegate the spiritual to the realm of the mystical and the impractical. This is rather obvious that very often we do not allow that which transpires in a worship hour to have any practical impact on the way that we live our business lives or the way we play sports or the way we conduct ourselves at school. We are able to compartmentalize our lives. And the underlying concept, I think, is, well, spiritual life is sort of mystical and impractical, but we do it anyway because we need it for a little time, an hour a week or so, but then we get back to the real world. Now, the Apostle Paul, I believe, is countering that kind of thinking, and he is saying, look, the life that I now live, and that refers to time, the life that I now live, I live in the body, and that refers to space. So what Paul is saying is that I am not talking about a spirituality that is esoteric and ethereal and utterly impractical. I'm talking about a quality of life that is essentially spiritual and essentially practical and is lived in time and space. The life I now live, I live in the body. What it means to look at the life, as Paul puts it, that I now live. Inexplicably, the NIV, the translation of the Bible that I'm using, does not translate the Greek word now. He is contrasting the life that he is living at the time he is writing with the life that he used to live. Look, if you will, in chapter 1, verse 13. This is what Paul writes. You have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. So he is at great pains not only to talk about the life that he's living, but he is at great pains to show the difference in the life that he now lives from the life that he used to live. Now, not only can he talk about the life that he used to live and, in addition, talk about the life that he now lives, but he is able to pinpoint certain crucial issues that made the difference between the life that he used to live and the life that he now lives. Now, there's a word for that. It's called conversion. Conversion. Now, of course, in Paul's case, there are those who would simply say, well, he just converted from Judaism to Christianity. They simply exchange one religion for another. That's not what Paul is talking about. When he talks about the fact that he used to live his life one way, now lives it in an entirely different way, the factors that made the difference were a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That is the crux. He says, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not just a matter of converting from one religion to another. It is a matter of being converted from the kind of person that he was into an entirely new person. And the relationship with Jesus is the crucial issue here. Now, I believe that in measure, everybody who is going to live a life according to the Scriptures has got to be able to talk about the life that I used to live and the life that I now live, and the factors that made the difference. 
I believe we ought to be able to do that. Let me help you understand a little more clearly what what I'm trying to get at here. When we think in terms of the factors that change us, we recognize that the first factor is what we'll call the divine dimension, and the second factor is what I would call the human response. The divine dimension and the human response. Now notice what Paul says here about the divine dimension in the change that took place in his life. Verse 15 of chapter 1. When God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, etc., etc., etc. Now notice two very important things that he says here. He says, God was pleased to reveal his son in me. And the second thing that he said is, God called me by his grace. Now one was God's pleasure and the other was God's call. The thing that we must understand is stated very clearly by Jesus himself. No one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. There is something about us as human beings constitutionally that does not lead us to seek after God. We're just not like that at all. At best, in our natural condition, we're apathetic to God. At worst, we are hostile to God. It is because of this that God is the one who is committed to intervening in the affairs of our world and in the affairs of our lives. And one of the great truths of the Christian gospel is that God is the one who has taken a phenomenal, phenomenal initiative and has sent his son into our world. I think it would be true to say that most of the religions, if not all the religions of the world, in one form or another, are about a person looking in some way for answers. But Christianity is all about God taking the initiative and looking for us. And there's all the difference in the world. Now, says the Lord Jesus, no one comes to the Father except the Father draw him. And Paul says, I can testify to the fact that God was, for reasons known only to himself, pleased to reveal his Son in me, and it was God who called me by his grace. Now, if this sounds a little obscure, let me assure you that God is active in the world all the time, and that God is in the business of revealing himself to us all the time. It's just that very, very often we don't Listen, we don't look, we don't take the time to be quiet and think we are unwilling to be open. But God is at work drawing people to himself. And I think all of us ought to be able to look back in our lives and see markers, some very obvious, some considerably less obvious, markers of where God was preveniently at work in grace in our lives. Let me give you an example of this. Many of you have heard Jill, my wife's story of how she came to faith as a young student at Cambridge in England. 
she fell ill, was in hospital, was met by a Christian there who explained the gospel to her. And as Jill would put it in her own words, right out of the blue, I came to faith. And the first time I heard Jill say right out of the blue, I said to her afterwards, I don't believe that for a minute. I don't believe you came to faith right out. Oh, she said, I certainly did. This was one of our normal discussions. <laughs> I certainly did. And, and I said, there would be times when you would be conscious of God drawing you to himself. I said, try and think of them. She said, you know, it's funny you should mention that. I distinctly remember when we were on vacation in France. We drove to, with the family. We drove too long. This is when she was a 13-year-old. We drove too long, nowhere to stay. We had a very uncomfortable night in the car. She said, as soon as this, the dawn came, she said, I couldn't bear it any longer. I got out of the car, stretched, and went and sat on a rock overlooking a valley, and the sun came up. And she said, I will never forget it as long as I live. The, the strangest sensation came over me, and she said, I wrote my very first poem. And she said, I can find it for you somewhere. And the incredible thing about this poem is this, that even though she is living in a godless scene, totally unchurched, the poem is all about what God is speaking to her in the sunrise. I said, there you go. There you go. I said, if you take the time to look, you'll find lots more like that. One of the things that happens when you bring your children from England to America is they grow up and marry Americans. That, that's perfectly fine. Wonderful. Then they begin to produce, at an alarming rate, American grandchildren. <laughs> that's just wonderful. But then it gets a little embarrassing because the Americans, you see, they all know where they came from. They're part Finn and part Irish and part this, that, or the other. So they all have their genealogies. And when our grandchildren were born, their American parents came to us and said, where's your family tree? Well, Brits don't have family trees. We suspect that if you go back two or three generations, somebody would be hanged for stealing a sheep or something. And so why bother with that? You know, why, why rake up all that stuff? But, but we, we, we really had to do it. So I said to Jill, Jill, we need to find out a little bit about your heritage. What was your grandfather's name? And she said, Granddad. I said, no, Jill, that was not his name. That was his title. She said, I have no idea what his name was. So that's how far our family tree goes back. So we started digging around for granddad. Well, I don't mean we started digging around for granddad, but... <laughs> what a good thing I was listening. Yeah. You, you get my drift, I trust. We started digging around, metaphorically speaking, and we found, not only did we find granddad's name, we actually found that he had a Bible. And we actually found he was a believer. And we actually found that he was a praying believer. And we began to recognize that long before Jill was 13, had a sense of God speaking to her in the sunrise. And long before at 18, she came to faith. All granddad who loved the Lord and who'd been praying, had been praying for his grandchildren. No surprise. No surprise. It's all there. It's all there. 
And what we have to recognize is that God is drawing us to himself. But that's only half the story. The other half of the story is this. We have to respond. We have to respond. So on the one hand, Paul says, God was pleased to reveal his son in me and he called me by his grace. But on the other hand, when he speaks in the Acts of the Apostles two or three times about his personal testimony, this is what he says. I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. And when God really spoke to him unmistakably and gave him a vision of the risen Christ, the first words out of his mouth were, what do you want me to do, Lord? You see, you see what's happening? He is coming to the point of recognizing that God is revealing to him the truth of who God is and what he is and who Christ is and what he offers, but he must respond. Now listen, when I am able to say, there came a time in my life when God made it abundantly clear that I needed Christ and I responded to that message and yielded my life to Christ, from that moment on, this is the life I've lived and it is in remarkable contrast to the life I used to live. Somewhere or other, we need to be able to explain it like that. Now, when you look at some people's conversion experience, the simple fact of the matter is this. Some are very dramatic. Oh, they have been living a life. We won't go into the details of it. It's like they were driving the wrong way up a freeway and wondering why all the traffic was going the wrong way. And it suddenly dawned on them. And they jammed on their brakes and they did a U-turn and they laid rubber and they screeched off in the opposite direction. Boy, what a conversion they have. That's what I call a rubber-laying conversion. And there are some people like that. But there are a lot of people, you know, who in actual fact, they're much like a rosebud covered with the dew of early morning, opening slowly, imperceptibly, but unmistakably to the rays of the morning sun. And you look at them and you say, look at that rose, what it is. And you say, look what it was. And you say, how in the world did it get from what it was to what it is? And the answer is... The divine intervention was revealing Christ to them. Grace was calling to himself and they in the power of the Spirit yielded and responded and they now say the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He didn't always do that. Uh Uh-uh. I'll tell you about my previous life if you want me to, but I'd rather talk about the life I now live and how I got here. That's the first thing. So Paul is able to show the difference in the life that he now lives. But the second thing that I want you to notice is that he is quite open about the difficulties of the life that he now lives. Now this is not apparent on the surface, but look again at Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body. Now focus on that word body. You know that the New Testament was written in Greek and for us was translated into English. The Greek word for body, the usual Greek word for body, is soma, from which we get psychosomatic. That is not the word that Paul uses here. He used an entirely different word, and the Greek word he uses is sarx, S-A-R-X. Now, I'm very self-conscious pronouncing that word because I, on one of my early visits to America, I preached the whole message on this and explained about socks and a lady came up to me at the end and she said, 
is it, is it like the Chicago White Sox that you were talking about? And I said, no, it's nothing to do with red socks or white socks or unwashed socks at all. I'm not talking about S-O-X. I'm talking about S-A-R-X. That's the key that I want you to think about now. Now, what in the world does Paul mean when he talks about socks? Well, it's translated usually flesh. And it can mean different kinds of flesh. There is the kind of flesh that exists between your bones and your skin and done lapped over your belt. Flesh. But we will not pursue that right now. There's a kind of flesh that, that describes humanity as a whole. You know, all flesh shall see the glory of God. All humanity. But then the word socks or the word flesh can speak about one special aspect of humanity. And it is this that we need to focus on. Flesh in the New Testament can speak about one specific aspect of universal humanity. And it is this, that humanity was made by God for God and rebelled against God and became alienated from God. And a human being alienated from God is bereft of the power of God in his or her life. And when a human being made by God for God is bereft of God and loses the power of God in his life, he or she begins to live a life in a certain way. And he will begin to discover, for instance, that he is not able to be what the Bible says he should be. He won't even want to be what the Bible says he should want to be. He will begin to look at his life and he'll begin to understand that there, he even at times will do what in his better moments he doesn't want to do. In fact, if he's strictly honest with himself, he will make commitments to stop doing certain things because they're wrong and then he finally goes back and does them all over again. It is, it is an experience common to humanity. Now, this experience of helplessness, of weakness, of taint, of twist, of warp, of being less than we ought to be. This, put this whole thing together, it's humanity estranged from God. And that is what Paul means by flesh. It is what a human being is, irrespective of God. It is what a human being is, independent of God. Now, William Barclay, the, the Scottish theologian, has a, a description of Sarks here. This is what he says it is. Sarks is human nature as it has become through sin. Weakened, vitiated, tainted. It is mankind as they are apart from Jesus Christ and his spirit. Now, if God created human beings to be indwelt by God and they lost God then the question is, what is the power that drives them? And the answer is, it is a power of independence of God, which will lead to all kinds of warped and twisted and tainted and vitiated and weakened behavior. And it's manifested in a thousand and one ways. You see flesh all over the place. 
Well, what is the antidote to that? And the antidote to that is the reintroduction of the power of God into a person's life. And pray, tell me, how does that come? When Christ by his Spirit comes to live within us, Christ living in us by the Spirit becomes the dynamic of our new life. And so we have two things set in contrast in the New Testament. Flesh, that is humanity in and of itself, independent of God, and a human being in whom the spirit of the living God is alive and at work, enabled and empowered to live in newness of life. And the Apostle Paul is very, very carefully saying, the life that I now live, I live in sarks. You see, the point here is this, that when Jesus becomes your savior and the spirit of God enters your life, the flesh is not eradicated. And you find yourself in a situation, Paul describes this for us in Galatians 5, you'll find yourself in a situation where you become excruciatingly conscious of the fact that in and of yourself, you still have that old independent spirit that wants to act independently of the Spirit of God, that does not want to rely upon Christ being Lord of your life. It's flesh. And the Spirit will constantly be reminding you of this. And you find that the flesh will be resistant of the Spirit and you'll find that the Spirit is all the time prodding the flesh and you find within you a conflict. You find within you a struggle. And that's where you live the life you now live in the Sarks. Now, here's the question. How do we cope with this inner struggle of flesh versus spirit and spirit versus flesh? Well, the first thing is we need to recognize the flesh when it is operating, socks when it's in business. Let me identify for you two passages of Scripture, and this will have to be quick. <laughs> I said that as if you've got to quicken up. It's me who's got to quicken up. Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. This is what Paul says to the Galatians. Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal of spiritual life, that is? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? But human effort here is sarks. So here's the question. Paul says, now look, you Galatian believers, let me ask you a question. How did you come to faith? Was it through the work of the Holy Spirit or did you figure it out all yourself? Did you come to faith by keeping the law and being absolutely justified by the law? They say, oh, no, 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 no. Well, how did it happen? Well, the Holy Spirit opened our eyes to see the beauty of Christ. The Holy Spirit convicted us of our sin. The Holy Spirit empowered us to respond in faith. The Holy Spirit is the one who came into our lives and we were born again in the Spirit. Good, you began in the Spirit. He said, they said, that's absolutely right. He said, then let me ask you a question. If you began in the spirit, why are you trying now to live the Christian life in the flesh? Isn't the Christian life a continuation of your initial experience of Christ? And if your initial experience of Christ was dependent on the work of the spirit, is not the continuation of your spiritual life utterly dependent on the spirit? They say, oh yeah. They say, well, why then are you living independently of the spirit? Why are you trying to do this absolutely on your own? Are you trying to be made perfect in the flesh? 
And the, the answer to that question was, yes, that was the Galatian problem. That was the Galatian problem. It's no mism. It is human beings trying to live the life of the Spirit in their own energy by keeping the law in their own strength. You can't do it. Remember, nomism is related to legalism. Legalism is people trying in the flesh, independently of the Spirit, to keep the law and therefore demand that God justify them. The flesh is perfectly happy to get into legalism. The flesh is perfectly comfortable getting into nomism. And the Apostle Paul says, to do that is an incredibly foolish thing to do. In fact, the NIV is very kind. It says, you foolish Galatians. In actual fact, what he literally said was, you dear idiots. You dear idiots. Of course, I would never say anything like that. So there's part of the problem. We have to recognize the flesh is perfectly happy, perfectly content to live independently of the spirit and be very cultured and very nice and incredibly religious, all without the Spirit, all without the empowering of Christ, all in their own efforts to be what the best that they can be. Without recognizing the best that they can be without the Spirit of God is not good enough. But there's another problem with the flesh. To look at this, we need to turn to chapter 5. Verse 13, this is what Paul says. You, my brothers, were called to be free. Now he's talking here about being free from all the rules and regulations of the law as a means of being justified. They've, they've understood that. They know that by the works of the law, nobody is justified. They've been freed up from that thinking. You've been called to be free. Now he says, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. And what's the sinful nature? Oh, it's our old friend. Socks. So you see, sometimes socks is human effort, trying to be good without the spirit, and sometimes the flesh is sinful nature, which is being perfectly happy being bad, because it doesn't matter, because I've been forgiven. It doesn't matter, because I've been forgiven. Now here are the two extremes that the flesh can go to. The flesh independent of the Spirit, can try to be good enough without the Spirit of God, or the flesh can ignore the Spirit and say, look, I've been forgiven. I've been given the gift of eternal life. I'm going to heaven when I die. I can do what I like. It doesn't matter. God will forgive me. He loves me unconditionally, and it doesn't matter what I do. Paul says that you're using your freedom to indulge the flesh. And it is totally unacceptable. Now then, what are we to do then? If we recognize that the flesh can give us the idea that we're perfectly free to do what we want and indulge ourselves in all kinds of behavior that is contrary to the Spirit, what are we to do? And the answer is we've got to recognize this that the only way that we can begin to handle the flesh, whether it goes into legalism or libertinism, is to recognize that it is the power of the Spirit alone 
that can overpower the flesh. And it is incumbent upon us to embrace a principle that Paul enunciates in Galatians. Listen, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. That is a principle. If you will walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And then shortly thereafter, Paul adds this. Therefore, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now notice we are to walk, we are to keep in step, which says that the life we now live is a life of progress, and it is lived one step at a time. But we can take a step utterly independent of the Spirit. I'm going to do this. I'm going to react to this. I want to do this. Or we can say there is a situation here in which I am inadequate, for which I do not have the ability. I fully recognize that my insight in this particular thing could well be twisted and warped. I am utterly dependent on the Spirit to empower me in this situation. I am utterly dependent on the Spirit to enlighten me in this situation. And as time goes on, I begin to recognize that without living in dependence upon the Spirit, I don't have what it takes to live the new life to which I have been called. So what do we have to do? We have to be excruciatingly aware of the flesh and its various manifestations. We have to begin to recognize how contrary to the spirit it is. And we have to begin on a regular step-by-step basis intentionally yielding ourselves to the inner dynamic of Christ who lives within us by his Spirit, to recognize that he and he only is the empowering for the life of trusting, loving obedience. The Apostle Paul says, in the end, the only thing that really counts is faith that is demonstrated by love. What does he mean by that? The only way that your life will work is not in the independent attitudes of the flesh. The only way your life will work is in dependence, in faith, on the faithfulness of Christ, who loved you, gave himself for you, and lives within you to be the dynamic of his own demands. And you'll know when you're doing that, because the manifestation of that kind of faith in the indwelling Christ is faith that demonstrates itself in love. Let's pray together. I'm going to pray two prayers here, two two entirely different kinds of prayers for two entirely different responses. The first prayer would be for somebody who says, you know, I guess I've been living with blinkers on to all the markers of God at work in my life. Being pleased to reveal his son to me, being calling me by his grace. I don't know if I have my fingers in my ears or if I have blinkers on or uh, what's been happening to me. I don't know where my head's been. I begin to realize now that he has been gracious. He's been patient with me. He's been waiting for me to respond. And I'm ready to do it now. Here's the kind of prayer you could pray. Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for being such a dear idiot because you have been after me for so long in a variety of ways. Sometimes you've whispered to me. 
Sometimes you've spoken clearly to me. Sometimes you have used a megaphone on me. And I'm taking my fingers out of my ears. And I'm saying, Lord, I begin to get it. That you love me so much that you sent Jesus to die for me. And you want me to yield my life unconditionally to you so that you might forgive my past and secure my eternity and become the dynamic of the life that I now live in the interim. I get it. And this is just to let you know that I am ready to say, Lord, I will not be disobedient to this vision. And I gladly embrace Christ as Savior and Lord. Here's the other prayer. Lord, this flesh thing, it's not very easy to understand, but it's very easy to recognize. Just like an unruly teenager that sometimes just wants to do its own way and goes off the deep end in one direction and goes on the deep, off the deep end in the opposite direction. Sometimes this independent spirit of mine wants to be godly without God, wants to be spiritual without the spirit, wants to do the whole thing on my own. And sometimes this flesh just says the heck with it. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go there. I'm going to be this. I'm going to have that. I know it's wrong. I'm going to do it anyway. I begin to realize how I have used my liberty as an excuse to indulge the flesh. I recognize that I need to be laying hold of this principle that if I walk in the spirit, I won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And you ask me, you command me to walk step by step, in step with the Spirit. I'd like to start now. I'd like to be able to step into different situations in dependence upon the Spirit. I'd like to begin to see His promptings, His enablings, so that in a very real sense, people around me will begin to recognize the difference between the life I used to live and the life I now live. And hopefully they begin to attribute it to the fact that I too have been crucified with Christ and the life that I now live in the body. I live by faith in the faithfulness of Christ who loved me and gave himself for me and has come to live within me. Lord, hear our prayers. You read our hearts. You know our responses to your word. Seal with your spirit transactions done in the quietness. Be glorified in our lives and use us for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.